0: fighting between Azerbaijan and Armenia yes, over the disputed territory of
1: Nagorno-Karabakh. The spoils of war shown by Azeri Public
2: Television.
3: into a violent confrontation with rising
4: stakes. Hello, I'm Richard Gisbert and you're watching The Listening Post, working from home. Here are some of the media stories we're covering this week. War zone journalism in the age of COVID-19 we examine the coverage of the fighting over Nagorno-Karabakh. Saudi Arabia uses one of its news channels to send Palestinians a message. Greetings from the racist past, postcards from the colonial era that shaped perceptions of Africa and its people, plus the latest shots fired
5: I will you.
4: in the uncivil war taking place within Donald Trump's Republican Party. We're now into the third week of fighting between Azerbaijan and Armenia in Nagorno-Karabakh, which threatens to morph into a wider conflict. The Azerbaijani military set the tone, bombarding civilian areas in the long disputed territory, which lies within Azerbaijan's borders but is mostly populated and controlled by ethnic Armenians. Armenia has countered by bombing multiple Azerbaijani towns. Both sides have their domestic media outlets on a war footing, beaming video of their military exploits on the television screens, social media, and the streets. There are major powers on the outside looking in, Turkey firmly on Azerbaijan's side, and Russia, whose support Armenia wants. Their media outlets are also worth monitoring on this story. For journalists, it's a tough one to cover. The primary battleground is remote and mountainous, and the pandemic has added to the challenges and dangers on the ground. Those are some of the reasons that so much of the video that we're seeing on this story is coming from the armies involved, their drone cameras. Our starting point this week, the skies above Nagorno-Karabakh.
6: Clashes erupted between Azerbaijani
4: and The decades old conflict flared up.
6: Azerbaijan and Armenia say this is war.
4: These are images from the first military conflict to have started in the era of COVID 19 and claimed the lives of civilians. Drone videos of death and destruction, captured from a safe distance. Black and white weapons in the propaganda war. The initial fighting in Nagorno Karabakh took place beyond the reach of news cameras. and the The pandemic has made getting to such a remote area a challenge for reporters. So the adversaries, Azerbaijan and Armenia, had the story, the first few days of it, to themselves. Their primary targets were domestic audiences, including street traffic in both capitals, Baku and Yerevan.
2: The Azerbaijanis have been releasing dozens of videos from these Turkish drones. The Azerbaijani Ministry of Defense has been putting out m- multiple videos every day showing strikes from these drones onto Armenian artillery, troops, different military positions. And this is related to their technological superiority in this aspect. And it definitely shows the scale of losses and casualties that Azerbaijanis has been able to inflict. But there is a lot of footage from the Armenian side as well. The ultimate
0: similarity between the two sides is that the broadcasting is extremely proud and nationalistic in content.
7: You
0: have evocative videos being put to high tempo music of tanks being blown up, of troops uh, fleeing from the front line and both sides are putting out these videos. There are reports in both Armenia and Azerbaijan of large numbers of people volunteering to go to the front line to fight for what they see as the integrity of of their states.
8: For the
4: past week, tens of thousands of people have been demonstrating in Soviet Armenia. Global audiences first learned of Nagorno-Karabakh in the late 1980s when the Soviet Union began to fray at the edges. But this conflict goes way back. In the 1920s, the Soviets invaded the region to reclaim parts of the fallen Tsarist empire. Armenia and Azerbaijan became Soviet republics, ruled by Moscow, and had their borders drawn up by Joseph Stalin. He made Nagorno-Karabakh part of Azerbaijan, despite its Armenian majority, leaving a problem for future generations to solve. When the USSR broke up, war broke out, Resulting in Armenia taking control of nagorno karabakh and then some. That war ended in 1994 with a ceasefire. No peace treaty. A quarter of a century later, Azerbaijan, which has been building up its military and now outmatches Armenia, resumed hostilities.
1: This conflict was frozen for 70 years without ever being solved by either side. A third power, the Soviet Union, came in and imposed its will by occupying both countries. When it flared up again, the Armenians took control of Nagorno-Karabakh. They also occupied the districts around it and forced the Azerbaijanis living there to leave their homes. According to the Azerbaijani president, Aliyev, Azerbaijan couldn't accept this, and that's
2: why they've launched this operation. Karabakh itself is such a, a huge issue for... Armenians and the Armenian perspective on it is if the Azerbaijanis backed by the Turks, especially conquer Karabakh, there will be mass ethnic cleansing. This is one of the big problems with the the conflict. The levels of hatred on both sides are so high because essentially Azerbaijani and Armenian society each have different conflicting, mutually exclusive, maximalist versions of how the conflict needs to be resolved.
4: There are marked differences in the respective media landscapes, the assets at each government's disposal and the way they use them. Armenia is a democracy. Journalists have experienced more freedom there since a 2018 change in government. Azerbaijan has been ruled by one family, the Aliyevs, since 1993. Like his father before him, President Ilhan Aliyev has kept the media under wraps. Censorship is rife. The Internet is tightly controlled, and crossing the line can land you in jail.
1: Even before Azerbaijan declared war, there were announcements saying things like, don't go online and write about sensitive things. The Ministry of Communications has imposed restrictions on the Internet, so local journalists have trouble reporting the latest news to foreign media. They use VPNs, but those are not fully secure. So communicating with the outside world remains a real problem for Azerbaijani media.
7: From the Armenian side, the media coverage is pretty similar to the government we have. So so far, we have been free. We had no censorship or whatever in any sort. The government of Armenia and the government of the Republic of Nagorno-Karabakh helped us also to provide permissions uh, to show us where to go and give us as much as information possible. So we, Armenian local media, were lucky enough to have enough information to cover the issue and the conflict. And. The war entirely.
0: And as a result of that, the kind of information which uh, both domestic and international audiences are able to get from Armenia is, is really quite comprehensive. It's altogether a more difficult situation when it comes to Azerbaijan, and the information flows that we have coming out of Baku are really very closely defined by the government rather than sort of citizen led social media style journalism, which so many of us now rely on to get our information about particular conflicts.
4: The two sides have taken their case to the international court of public opinion, focusing on two media spaces in particular, Russia's and Turkey's. Baku's Turkic ties to Ankara are evident in the Turkish media's portrayal of Armenia as the aggressor in this conflict, despite the fact that Azerbaijan was the first to bomb civilian areas. The Turkish narrative focuses on the history, Azerbaijan's right to reclaim lost territory. Both President Aliyev and Armenia's Prime Minister Nikol Pashinyan have been on the Russian airwaves trying to get Moscow on side joseph stalin may have created the borders that inflamed this conflict but vladimir putin is clearly reluctant to take a side at least which has led to some unusual terminology being used to describe the russian media's handling of a geopolitical story unfolding on their
2: doorstep words like fair balanced Russian media has actually been extremely careful to take this neutral stance in the conflict. Despite the fact that you know Armenia is their treaty ally, there's a Russian military base in Armenia itself, so Russian media, although you might expect them to have more pro-Armenian bias, it really hasn't been there, which fits with Russia's role in the conflict so far as well.
1: Which, uh... The major media outlets in Russia are reporting this as merely one story among hundreds. However, that's not the case in Turkey. All channels there, from the state broadcaster TRT to private TV stations, are talking about Nagorno-Karabakh. And apart from very minor exceptions, I haven't seen any Turkish news outlet that does not support Azerbaijan.
7: The Turkish media wrote about Armenia as being the aggressor as being the bad guy, as being the one who wants the end of the Azerbaijanis. So whatever is happening in this war, according to the Turkish media, the responsibles are Armenians and Nagorno-Karabakh people.
4: The point made in the Azerbaijani media and amplified through Turkey about the land the Armenians took in 1994 is not without merit more than half a million Azerbaijanis were forced out of Nagorno-Karabakh. Now, Armenian civilians are paying the price. Tens of thousands have already been displaced. Azerbaijan has chosen this moment, mid-pandemic, to right what it calls a historical wrong, a time in which it's easier to control access, imagery, and the narrative. And timing is everything. Just ask the reporters trying to cover the fighting or the people trying to survive it. We're going to take another look now with Meenakshi Ravi at a development that we reported on a few weeks back, the spin and the messaging surrounding what's been called the historic peace deal signed by the United Arab Emirates and Bahrain with Israel. Mina, the media lens has since swung towards Saudi Arabia. The question people are asking is whether it will do the same as the Gulf states. What have you been seeing coming out of there?
5: Well, Richard, even before the UAE and Bahrain signed those agreements, the Saudi media narrative was shifting on Israel. Considering that the Palestinian cause has been a defining issue in Arab politics for decades, what I found significant on the Saudi airwaves is the open and sustained finger-pointing at the Palestinian leadership. The Saudi-owned pan-Arab channel Al Arabiya ran a three-part interview, more of a monologue really, with Prince Bandar bin Sultan, he is a former director of Saudi intelligence and an ex-ambassador to the United States, a very prominent member of the royal family. He came on air with a message.
8: The reason why I wanted to talk about this night is that I heard the last day a that I would say about the brothers in the Palestinian regime. The truth is true. And the reason it is true is that it was a high level.
4: And is he referring to the criticism from Palestinians and others in the Arab world of these normalization deals?
5: Exactly, Richard. And Prince Bandar bin Sultan spent two hours of airtime laying out in great detail what Saudi Arabia has done for the Palestinians on the world stage, dating all the way back to World War II. And he said, according to him, that the Palestinian leadership were incompetent, selfish, and ungrateful. <laughs>
8: Many
5: Palestinians would likely agree with Prince Bandar bin Sultan's characterization of their leadership. He was, however, at pains to make a difference between the Palestinian people and their leadership. He said, however, that the Palestinian leadership had lost all goodwill and it was time for Saudi Arabia to look out for itself a very clear hint towards possible uh, normalization.
4: But as you said, Mina, this is the ex-ambassador to the US. He no longer holds a formal position. So how do we know that this is Saudi policy that we're hearing from him and not just the opinion of a single member of the family?
5: Well, because of the optics and because members of the Saudi royal family tend not to speak out of line, certainly not for two hours on the air on a channel owned by them that broadcasts to the Arab world. There was one more thing we spotted. Throughout this interview in the same frame was a portrait of the first king of Saudi Arabia, Abdelaziz. The Palestinian cause was a seminal issue for him. So you could see a bit of stagecraft along with the statecraft on Al Arabiya.
4: OK, thanks, Mina. In the late 19th century, there was a form of mass media, a visual one, that predated television by about 50 years. Any guesses as to what that medium was? Postcards. Postcards were a European media phenomenon. The photos let people see the world without leaving their home. And like many modern forms of media, they were visual, cheap, and relatively easy to distribute. But it was the era of colonialism, and postcards were also a means of asserting racial superiority. Photographers were sent with colonizers to take pictures of what they saw, sometimes of what they wanted to see. From the most mundane aspects of life to some disturbing images of colonial brutality. The European powers went home long ago, but the stereotypes in those images continue to shape perceptions of Africa today. The Listening Post's Tarak Nafa now on the legacy of postcards from days gone by.
5: It's very easy for us now to think of a postcard as a kind of happy snap from holidays, right? The sort of wish you were here to family and friends. But they were in their own day a new media craze.
9: They were produced Specifically, to construct a particular image of Africa and Africans, the scramble for Africa, you know, occurred 1884ish, where European powers basically carved up different uh, parts of Africa to colonize. Part of that process was to somehow justify colonization: why uh, one nation would take over another nation.
6: They sent missionaries, they sent politicians, and they sent photographers. The people with the cameras um, get to dictate how we see, who we think we're seeing, what we think we're seeing. And so I think that's part of what makes those images so dangerous.
8: They are images that show Europe's civilizing mission as the men behind it wanted it to be seen. The monuments of empire courthouses, churches, ports and train stations and the locals, those in need of civilizing. Photography was a major component of European colonialism and the late 19th and early 20th century was the golden age of postcards, an early form of mass media. The images taken by an assortment of commercial photographers, missionaries, ethnographers and colonial administrators were printed and posted back home billions of times, shaping Europe's view of Africa and the Orient.
9: They come under three very loose themes. The kind of highly uh, sexualized, eroticized um, woman, you know, Arab woman or African woman, you know, bare-chested, often posed in a suggestive way. The other theme would be uh, Africans as servers, you know, always in a kind of domesticated state, servants to colonial administrators or missionaries or military personnel. And then the third, the African as savage, you know, African warriors, as savage,
3: as uncivilized, um, not to be trusted. This is Nigeria, and it's titled Ibo Hunters with uh, Flintlock Guns. Um, And this was a very common type, showing sort of the barbarity or the savagery of of Africans, and particularly as hunters. And so this particular image is basically just showing them in their everyday clothing. And you can see that it's actually been staged to some extent because you have two individuals on either side who are kneeling and sort of looking directly at the camera. So there's an understanding of cooperation and collaboration in creating this image.
8: Photographers carefully selected both their subjects and their surroundings. For those in the business of selling postcards, there was a commercial interest in making images that tantalized or in some way fed into a pre-existing bias. You can see that clearly in images from France's colonial encounter with North Africa. Faced with women who did not conform with their exotic fantasy, photographers simply made up photos that did.
6: They had this mythology of Algerians as kind of oversexualized. Um, they had the image of the harem in their mind. But when they arrived, the Algerians looked nothing like the French had imagined them. Many of the women were veiled or um, covered, and so they were inaccessible to the photographer's gaze. They ended up hiring people to act as models. They set up studios, they asked the women to pose in the way that the colonizers had imagined those people. Then they produced postcards and sent them back to France to say this is what these people are like and they need our help.
5: This was very much a commercially driven business and it was photographers, people running photographic studios that were looking for cards that that they could sell, they could sell cheaply. And all these postcard producers and photographers were copying each other. They were ruthless in stealing other people's ideas and images, so this is the way in which these genres kind of reproduce themselves
0: over time.
8: The lands of those depicted in the postcards have long since won their independence but the cultural impact, the stain of the imagery, lives on. You can trace the link between depictions of black and brown bodies today, and the often degrading and orientalist depictions of the colonial period. Then, like now, the bodies of those deemed in some way foreign are more likely to show up in the media starving, destitute, naked or dead.
6: The only bodies that we see in the media are usually brown and black bodies from other countries. That ends up producing an, a vision of the world where violence is something that happens elsewhere to nameless victims. I used to think that something about being an American was the reason that we didn't see Americans' bodies in the media, um, but then I saw Michael Brown's body on the front page of the New York Times and he's an American. So it seems to me that there's something different operating that should force us to ask questions about whose bodies are made visible whose bodies are hidden and why and what work those images do
9: the uh, continuing visions um, or images of kind of black death and trauma has definitely continued Um, from the past those images are enduring if you have no association with the person as a human being. When that humanity is removed, it's easier to think about that person as, as, as an object, almost as like a scientific, you know, object. Uh, there is no agency, there is no humanity.
8: There are layers to these postcards. They tell us a lot about the colonial mindset. And in a time before photos appeared in newspapers, they also served as a form of photojournalism. But too many of these images stripped the subjects of their humanity. They are the visual expression of a racial hierarchy. Today, pictures like these force us to confront how those who thought themselves superior Constructed an image of those deemed the other.
3: Re-examining and critiquing these postcards really helps us understand the nuances of history. The postcards themselves moved through so many different facets of life at the time, whether it's the post office or through colonial offices, right? Through the hands of you know everyday citizens. These were artifacts that really made it into every niche of life, and so we really should understand them as artifacts of our histories, tangible objects that have come through history with us.
6: People have talked a lot about how Photoshop or video manipulation has introduced the possibility that images can be doctored or falsified, but what these colonial photographs show is that they've always been doctored and falsified, they've always been put to political use. And it's our job to become viewers who are more critical and better able to see what they actually show, which is the violence of the colonial vision. To become viewers capable of looking past the margins and uh, rescuing the information that, that is there that we are trained not to look at.
4: And finally, last week we looked at the Lincoln Project, a group of Republican operatives in the U.S. that's been flooding social media with ads in support of the Democratic presidential candidate, Joe Biden. These are Republicans who are openly and forcefully working against Donald Trump's re-election. Their ads have been criticized on all sides for sensationalizing and fear-mongering. Still, the Trump administration does make it easy for them. Ever since the president's case of COVID-19 was made public, the messaging from officials on Trump's condition has been at best confused and at worst flat out lies. So in the spirit of the year 2020, here's one more ad, musical theater reworked by Republicans on the Trump administration's epic mismanagement of the COVID outbreak at the White House. We'll see you next time here at the Listening Post.
0: Don't cry for me, White House staffers The truth is I will infect you
5: All through my tweeting, my mad existence I broke my promise, won't keep my distance I always say it too much Never mind the thousands of lies I have told to
0: you. As for wearing masks and acting sane, that is nothing
7: that I will err